We're in 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel 25. So we're returning to 1 Samuel after touching on one of the Psalms that David wrote in the midst of his suffering. Really, in 1 Samuel 24 and 25, remember in, in the Old Testament books, there were no real chapters, chapter divisions, except maybe in the Psalms where you would see a, a new Psalm starting. But in 1 Samuel 24 and 25, really, are meant to be read together uh, because we see some comparisons and some themes that run aside each other. And 1 Samuel 24, if you remember, Uh, We saw God give King David, uh, give Saul into King David's hand. Uh, David was hiding in a cave in En Gedi. There was water there. There was food source there. And David was there with his men. And Saul is chasing him. Saul goes into into a cave. And uh, that just happened to be the cave where David and his army were hiding. His men told him to kill Saul. And David refused to lift his hand and to do violence against the Lord's anointed. He would wait on God's promise and God's favor. So in chapter 25, right after this event, we see a much different side of David. I'm going to read the whole chapter. So hear this word from God. 1 Samuel 25. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house in Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Moan whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful. But the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time we were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand for your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants in these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men 
were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore, know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two skin of wine, skins of wine and five sheep already prepared, and five seahs of parched grain, and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears. Hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for he as is his name, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living and in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from a hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause for grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt, from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. 
And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until morning light. In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has avenged the insult I received from the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray once again. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even in these narrative histories, there is great truth. There is great encouragement for us. For it is your inspired word. This is your message to us tonight. We pray that you would truly be glorified that you would strike a straight blow with this crooked stick and that we would be encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to talk about God's kind providence because everything that David experiences, I think, is so relatable to us as well. First note that Samuel has died and all Israel mourn. This is in verse 1. So this is a great marker in the book of Samuel. Uh, Because remember, Saul was commissioned by Samuel, anointed by Samuel to be king. Saul totally failed his duties as a king, um, especially with regard to the Amalekites. When he was supposed to destroy everything, and what did he do? He kept alive all the best things, all the spoil for himself. And because he pursued his own good instead of the good of God and obeyed God, God rejected him as king. And yet he still sought after Samuel, although Samuel refused to see him, except for the one time when he came prophesying when he was chasing David. Samuel was the leader before there were any kings. So imagine Samuel's death affected all of Israel. Especially now, too, when you have such an internal strife going on in the land. Saul, the king, chasing the heir apparent, if you will, King David or the future King David, Israel must have felt a mighty shock. And yet all this was part of God's plan, as we shall see as we continue to work through the book of 1 Samuel. It says that David went to Paran in the wilderness. So if you could imagine the map of Israel, he's working his way south. He's going as far south into the desert in Judah as he could possibly go. 
It's a wilderness. Even now, it's still a desert. It's a desolate place. Um, And yet, what he seems to do is find the most wealthy person there, a Calebite, an Israelite, and protect him. This was a dangerous country, and he and his men protected his sheep, his property, because they were trying to be a blessing to those around them. So who is this Nabal or Nabal? Well, if you look at verses 2 and 3, we aren't given his name first. It's interesting. We're told all about his possessions, all of his wealth. And then we're told his name. And this is fitting because he's known by his possessions. He's known by what he has, not by the character of his heart. His name is Fool. And it mentions that he's a Calebite, probably because Caleb is very close to the Hebrew for dog. So they're basically making Nabal seem like a worthless human being in the sight of God, an enemy of God and his people. He's harsh. We're told he behaves badly. He's worthless. Nobody can speak to him. He's a drunk. He's very wealthy. He lives like a king. Self-sufficient and prideful, wealthy and irreverent, indulgent and unholy. And then we're contrasted with Abigail. We're told she's discerning and beautiful. How Nabal got matched up with Abigail, I have no idea, except that he's really rich, and that seems to always be the case. Resourceful, Abigail is believing in God. Abigail is discerning. And she's married to a worthless man. So we pick up the story where David is sending his young men at the time of shearing. And shearing was a time of great feasting. It's like the time of the harvest um, for a farmer. This is where he's going to make his money. He shears the sheep and he sells the wool. Uh, So it's a time of great feasting. And David introduces himself in verses 5 through 8. He sends ten young men. Go up to Carmel. Go to Nabal and greet him in my name. Peace be to you. Peace be to your house. Peace be to all that you have. Shalom, shalom, shalom. David blesses him. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us. We did them no harm. They missed nothing in the time that they were in Carmel. Let your young, my young men find favor in your eyes. It's a feast day. Give us whatever is at hand and your servants and to your son David. Very respectful address. Very honoring of Nabal as a wealthy and prominent person in the country. Nabal's response is foolish without any discretion at all, rejecting the future king's kindness. It says in verse 14 that Nabal railed at them. Uh, This word is used one other time when Elijah was talking to Saul after the incident with the Amalekites and all the sheep and all the bleeding of the goats that Elijah heard. And Elijah said to Saul, why did you pounce on the spoil? That's the word. Rail, pounce on. Nabal pounced on David's men with his words. 
And David, all of his work and effort to protect this man, all this hard work, he thinks he's doing the right thing before the Lord, all is repaid with nothing but derision. And he says, strap on your swords. So contrast this response to chapter 24. Similar situation. Here's Saul unjustly pursuing him. He's brought into this cave. David could easily kill him. Um, And David refuses to spill Saul's blood for his own personal gain, for his own personal honor. So what's happening? This is just a revelation of what is inside each one of us. We are always prone to self-deception. It's, it's as if David, in the one hand, with Saul, saw that it was perfectly right not to harm Saul. This is in the Lord's hands. I will not harm Saul. And yet a similar situation happens with Nabal, who is kind of a type of Saul. He's described as a king, feasting like a king. We're supposed to think of the king, Saul. And we're supposed to see that David doesn't treat Nabal like he treated Saul at all. Rather than leaving it to the Lord's hands, his pride is pricked, and he says, strap on your sword. I think our lesson is that just because you learn one lesson, one spiritual lesson one day, Don't be surprised if God doesn't teach you the same lesson in another way the next day. Yes, you learn that lying was wrong and you're striving not to lie. But sometimes you might conceal the truth, conceal part of the truth to preserve your own face or protect your honor. Yes, you you are battling pornography and you know that it's wrong and you've, 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 had some great success by the power of the Spirit. And yet, at times, you look at girls lustfully and you don't think twice about it. It's the same lessons, but applied differently in your mind. You've learned not to, uh, not to question God's sovereignty. You've learned to trust God when bad things happen. And yet when little tiny bumps happen on the road of life, you think nothing of grumbling and complaining. You know that worldliness is wrong, but you spend all of your free time in front of the television. Jesus seemed to address these same things in the Sermon on the Mount, didn't He? He talked about murder. The Pharisees were so self-sufficient, so perfect in their own eyes. They had God figured out, much like we often think we do. We've got, we've got this thing figured out. We live good Christian lives. We're okay. And he told them, you say you don't murder, but you're always angry. You say you don't commit adultery, but you're always lusting. With Saul, David chooses mercy to an undeserving murderer. And with Nabal, David chooses vengeance on a prideful fool because his pride was pricked. And I think for me, this is the big lesson that usually if I fail somewhere against someone else, it's because my pride is pricked. My pride prickles and I, I, I just act from the impulse. And most sins can be traced to pride, if not all. 
You're choosing yourself over God. Notice that David is told by Abigail, and he mentions it himself, that he is acting as his own savior. Isn't that what we all try to do throughout our lives? To act as our own savior, to bring our own salvation? Well, to avoid this duplicity in our lives, the solution for us is the same as it is for David. To look to Yahweh, to look to the Lord, to fix your eyes on Jesus and his person and his work. You realize that David is learning a long lesson of humility before God raises him up to kingship. This is our lives as well. God is going to continue to bring us to a place of humility before he raises us up. And this is his good pleasure and it's our joy to be disciplined by such a loving father. But then we get to the kind of the, the central figure of this part of the narrative, which is Abigail. Abigail is the hero of this chapter. Abigail is the hero of this particular story. We see in verses 18 to 22 that Abigail is moving toward David on the side of the mountain, and David is moving toward Nabal, and they meet somewhere in the middle. David is moving for war, and Abigail comes with shalom, with peace. So a couple things this brings to mind. People have said, well, shouldn't Abigail actually have listened to her husband and honored her husband? It says she went behind his back, says she called him a worthless man or a foolish man. This doesn't seem very honoring. But the reality is she used the necessary words and did the necessary things to save his life. And I'm not saying the ends justify the means. Of course, they do not. But the principle is that when the decrees of God are contrasted by the decrees of man, you have to go with God. She was dealing with David, the future king, David, the anointed one, David, the type of Christ. So Abigail did perfectly right in going behind her husband to save his life. She was following after God. And her speech is full of God's truth. This is one of the the wonderful speeches really in all of Samuel. Look in verse 26. This is right up there with Hannah's speech in the very beginning, months and months ago. She says, Now then, as my Lord, now then, my Lord, as the Lord, Yahweh, lives, and as your soul lives, Because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. So Abigail restrained David from blood guilt, meaning that if he had actually carried out this scheme... He would have been like Saul. He would have been destroying this whole family the way Saul had destroyed the village of Nob, if you remember the priests of Nob. He destroyed everyone. So Abigail saved David from blood guilt. She's acting as a true friend. She's keeping David from sin. 
And then she gives him a, a large gift and places and asks for forgiveness. And because of David's honor and because of the culture, David really had to forgive her. He really, not that he would not have, but she knew exactly what she was doing. She placed him in this position. She backed him up into a corner of forgiveness and said, forgive me. And David had to forgive her. So she not only keeps him from sin, which is admirable, but she pushes him to God's promises. She's like a female prophet in a way. She's speaking the truth of God as a prophet does. Speaking the truth of God to David's heart. So David, if you don't remember, is probably always verging on discouragement. Read the Psalms. He's still being chased. He's still in the wilderness. Now he's protected this very wealthy man for months. And his repayment is derision and scorn. And God sends this woman into his life to remind him of God's character, to remind him of God's promises, and to keep him from sin. Not to become his own savior. She says, if men rise up to pursue you and seek the life, seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in a bundle of the living and the care of the Lord your God. She's just reminding him of the promises of God. She's heard of God's promises to David, apparently, and is reminding him that they're true. And her last statement is full of irony and full of punch and spunk. I love it. She says, And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. You see what she just did? She's reminding David of his great trust in God when he fought Goliath. And in her own words and in her own way, she's saying, God will save you just like... Um, making your enemies like a stone in a sling, and he'll throw them out. She's encouraging him to trust God again and not work salvation for himself, not have any cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause. Don't do God's work. Do your own job. And God will do his job. Of course, she's absolutely right. And David receives this good word and says, Blessed be the Lord, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. God sent Abigail. And we don't know how much this changed David's perspective, but I bet it's something he never forgot. God sent Abigail. In God's providence, He sent this woman to meet Him. Providence, our confession, our catechism defines providence as God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. In God's providence, this situation happened as it was supposed to for God's glory and for David's good. And for Nabal's good, for Abigail's good, it all happened right. A Heidelberg is 
wonderful when it speaks of providence as well. And number 27, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. What a comfort to the souls of those who love Jesus to know that there is no random with our God. Everything is for a purpose. I remember in the Air Force, people who had no appreciation for God at all would say to me, well, everything happens for a reason. And I would agree, this is true. You don't know why it's true, but it's true. Everything does happen for a reason. That reason is God. He's the first cause of everything that happens. In Him we live and move and have our being. Colossians 1, we read a bit this morning. Verse 16 says, For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. If Christ stopped holding things together even for a moment, everything would be demolished. Nothing would exist. George Swinnick, the Puritan, said, The greatest angel depends on God for existence as much as the smallest of atoms. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by the word of His power. Indeed, all creation, all the universe, everything that exists, all the laws of science, all of it, your body, all the laws of biology, of physics, it all holds together because of Jesus. And because of that, His providence is certain. All of His attributes make all of His providence certain. And it's all for God's glory. There's nothing in the providence of God that is accidental. And when we speak of providence, it's not as if God is forcing people to do things that they don't want to do. That's not what we mean by providence at all. That's not the biblical teaching of providence. Read our confession of faith on your own time. But it talks about how God sweetly orders the events. He doesn't violate the, the conscience or the will of the creature. But all things are sweetly disposed by His sovereign goodness and purpose. It was providence that brought Abigail to David. And David needed to learn this lesson. There's actually more significant providence, and this is kind of more encouraging to me almost than Abigail. Why did Abigail even know what was going on? There was some servant, some slave in the house who heard the conversation and told Abigail. 
That's God's providence. Think of all the ways that we see God's providence throughout the scriptures. Just off the top of my head, Abraham's servant looking for a wife for Isaac goes to a well and says, Lord, the next woman that comes, may this be the one for my master's son. There's Rebecca. That's God's providence. The caravan coming by just as Joseph is being accosted by his brothers, waiting in the pit to be killed. And a slave caravan comes by just at that moment. And his brothers sell him to Egypt. That's providence. Of course, Joseph even told them that God had done this to save them. The entire book of Esther is about God's providence. You know, in Esther... God's name is not even mentioned, not once. It seems that the whole point of the book is to show that God is working through the actions of men to accomplish his purposes through providence. Why was Esther so beautiful and living in the capital city? It was God's providence. Why did Mordecai overhear the assassination plot against Xerxes? It's God's providence. Why was the king not able to sleep all night so that they would open up the books and read him the histories of his kingdom? It's God's providence. Reminding him of Mordecai. And Haman walking in on the night when the king couldn't sleep, just at the moment when he's reading about Mordecai. That's God's providence. And I would say to you that these things are not the exception. These things happen to us all the time, of course. Everything that happens is part of God's plan. Why was Joseph and Mary, why were they in Bethlehem? There was a census. The Roman government conducted a census and drove them to Bethlehem to be counted. This is the providence of God. And you can see God's providence everywhere in your life as well. So like Abigail, you should be encouraged. There's, no, there's nothing in your life that doesn't have a meaning if you understand God's work. When you are talking to someone, this is, this is an event that was ordained by God. Everything, even a bird that falls from the sky is ordained by God. How much more when you're talking to another image bearer? In the providence of God, this person is talking to you and you need to be thinking God thoughts. You need to befriend them. You need to love them. You need to share with them the reason for your hope. And even if your contribution is no more than what the servant did, speaking the truth to someone who can help, praise God, you've done something good. And it does give me just encouragement to see that Abigail is the hero of this particular part of the plot. Abigail is the hero. Ladies, we don't live in a kingdom where men do everything and ladies are just in the shadows doing nothing. It's never been that way. Need I remind you that you are daughters of the king? We're sons of the king. Insofar as that, we're equal. We're equally valuable before our Father in heaven. Certainly we have different roles But don't disparage your place. Where he's placed you now is for his good purpose. 
Ephesians 1, we'll close with these few scriptures. In Christ, in Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. All things. All things work according to the counsel of His will so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we shall acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. See, our whole lives are bound up in the sovereignty the power and the goodness and the wisdom of God. Because our God is all of that. We have great hope. We have great comfort. His providence is good providence. Even painful providence is good in some way. It produces a a fruit of hope to the praise of His glory. We serve a good and faithful Father who disciplines us not one iota more than we need to accomplish the sanctification in our souls. Not one little bit more. He loves His children. So as David was kept from sin in the providence of God by this woman, Abigail, from great blood guilt, as David was pushed to remember the promises of God. Providentially, you are here this evening, and I'm encouraging you to trust in the promises of God. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He has adopted you into this family, and if He's for you, who can be against you? If He didn't give His own Son for you, we would have much to worry about. But the one who gave His own Son for you, won't He give you everything else that you need? He will. So trust Him. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank You and we praise You for all of Your goodness, all of Your mercy, all of Your love. We pray in Jesus' name that You be glorified in every way in our lives, that we would trust Your providence, that we would trust Your goodness, that we would trust Your character, and that You be glorified in all that we do, in all that we say, in all that we think. Oh Lord, forgive our sins and draw us to Yourself. Wrap us in your love. Encourage our souls with the light, the glory of the Father found in the face of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name.